On the show today, Professor Guy Claxton, here to talk about his new book, The Future of Teaching and the Myths That Hold It Back. When reflecting back on early days in his life, Guy Claxton considered himself to be an unadventurous, unexceptional learner in school. Although well-liked by his teachers and well-behaved, Guy felt as though he was a middle-of-the-road type of student. During this time, his parents moved from London to a very rural area in the West Midlands of England. As this was a very isolated area, Guy had no kids his age to hang around with, which helped to create the conditions for him to become much more self-sufficient, imaginative, and resourceful in many different ways ultimately leading him to develop a deep love of reading and interest in exploring the countryside. It was in his mid-teens that Guy had to take some high-stakes exams to help prepare for higher education. As Guy states in his own words, much to everybody's surprise, including mine, I did unexpectedly well. As a result of his performance on his O-level exams, Guy experienced, as he calls it, a personality shift within himself, spurring him on to believe that it was possible for him to be bright and to become intellectually and educationally successful. Little did he know it at the time, but Guy would go on to earn a double first in natural sciences from Cambridge University and a doctorate in experimental psychology from Oxford, and eventually become an internationally renowned cognitive scientist. Guy is a fellow of the British Psychological Society, the Academy of Social Sciences, and the Royal Society of Arts. His interest in writing early on in his life led him to become a prolific author in education, having written or co-written nearly 30 books. He is best known for developing the concept of learning power, a collection of skills and attitudes that underpin someone's ability to tackle complex matters with confidence, capability, and relish. Guy has come on the podcast today to really unpack his latest book, The Future of Teaching and the Myths that Hold It Back. And two important questions he poses are, what is the purpose of school and what does the future of education hold? In his own words, he states, it's time for the educational slugfest to stop. Traditional and progressive education are both caricatures, and bashing cartoon images of each other is unprofitable and unedifying. The search for a new model of education, one that is genuinely empowering for all young people, is serious and necessary. 
He goes on to say that although some good progress has already been made, teachers and school leaders are being held back by specious beliefs, false oppositions, and the limited thinking of orthodoxy. Guy has a natural ability to connect with others, and despite all of his accomplishments in life, he is not only down to earth, but also a very kind and caring person striving to impact the world through his work and to advocate for every young person's right to learn in a psychologically and emotionally safe environment that not only helps them achieve success in school, but also supports them to develop the skills and dispositions needed to thrive in this ever-changing, complex, and uncertain world. It was a genuine pleasure of mine to have this conversation with Guy, and wherever you are in the world listening to this, I sincerely hope you find valuable takeaway that you can apply to your own work, whether it be educational leadership, or teaching in the classroom, or teaching in the single subjects. I highly encourage you to get your hands on a copy of Guy's latest book and to share it with other educators wanting to make a difference in the work that they do. Let's pick it up with Guy talking about who he is and the work he does. I'm a cognitive scientist by training. Um, I have degrees in um, experimental psychology from Cambridge and a DPhil in uh, psycholinguistics from Oxford. Um, Most of my work, however, has been, well, there have been two strands to my my professional life. One is uh, as a contributor to uh, the technical literature in cognitive science on specifically on what I call non-intellectual forms of intelligence. So intuitive intelligence, aesthetic intelligence, embodied intelligence, and so on are, uh, and indeed unconscious forms of intelligence, are things which have preoccupied me a lot. But in parallel with that, my day job, so to speak, for a long time has been working in education uh, around the idea of um, learning itself as being learnable that people, young people can get better at learning, that it's better seen as a craft rather than an expression of some fixed ability like intelligence. Mm. And it's a complex craft made up of knowledge and skills, but also importantly of mindsets and attitudes. Uh, so this is that's the conception. And then the kind of philosophical or moral twist on that or complement to that is if we can help young people become more uh, competent and um, enthusiastic learners, then we jolly well should because it's, uh, it's a learning world out there. It's a complex world full of all kinds of risks and excitements and stresses and challenges and opportunities and uncertainties. And for the vast majority of people who are alive at this time in history, being able to be good at dealing with things that are novel or uncertain or challenging is part of what I like to think of as the trunk of character, like the trunk of a tree. We all grow, of course, we all grow our branches and our twigs and our leaves and our flowers in a whole myriad of different ways. 
but I'm of the view that some core set of values, like, for example, the pro-social values of kindness and friendliness and trustworthiness and honesty and so on, which you find in a lot of the major religions of the world. But I think by the side of that, these values to do with being good, not, not being frightened, not being defensive, in the face of things that are strange or novel or challenging is a major asset that everybody could do with and that school is the obvious place to work, to conceive, if you like, as a kind of apprenticeship, a cognitive apprenticeship in building up those competencies. I want to ask you a question before we dive into your book. And one of the main reasons you're on the podcast is to share your amazing book. I've heard really good things from uh, people that I know. You and Macintosh uh, got his hands on a copy and, and promoted it on social media. A number of uh, really fantastic educators and educational leaders that I know already have the book in their hands and are highly recommending it, including mm. our friend, Kath Murdoch. Um, mm. And before getting into the book, I really want to ask you um, a question about the type of learner you were as a child and what you were interested in as a young learner. And in particular, what type of support do you feel you needed from your teachers to thrive in your own unique ways? And were those needs met? Um, so just just a little more context, because I like to really dig into my my guests, um, what things were like for them growing up to better understand the strengths that they developed that led them to the work that they do and the ways they give back to the world. So can you just give us a little glimpse into younger guy and <laughs> what that was like? Um, I think I was fairly unadventurous in a lot of ways, or certainly very unexceptional at school. I was, I was a good boy, well-behaved, liked by my teachers, but very middle of the road. This was in a sort of minor independent school um, in Worcester in the, in the UK. Um, out of school, so this was a boarding school. I was a, I was a boarder for 10 years. Um, and in the holidays... Uh, my parents moved from London to a tiny cottage in a remote part of the West Midlands of England where I had very few friends. And I think that, that made me self-sufficient in a way, uh, self-sufficient and imaginative and resourceful in some ways, um, sort of out of school. You know, I had to make my own amusement. Um, and I did. So I read a lot and explored a lot in the countryside and uh, worked with a local farmer and, and so on. But in school, I was unexceptional until at the age of about 15 or 16, when we did high stakes exams that were in those days called O-levels in the UK. And much to everybody's surprise, including mine, I did really un unexpectedly well. Um, and this caused a kind of personality shift in me. It's like I realized that, that it was possible for me to be bright, whereas I hadn't really thought of that. Mm -hmm. So that sort of shift in what, what in the technical literature is called shift in my possible selves. So it became a possible self for me, like an ambition that could feature on my personal radar to be uh, intellectually, educationally, 
successful. Um, and, and of course, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you work harder, you enjoy what you're doing more, you feel more successful, and so on. So, you know, so it, the, that self-fulfilling prophecy came true and I got my place at Cambridge. But I often date a, a, another watershed was when I moved from my undergraduate studies, which were very teacher-led, very traditional lectures and copying things down fast and writing essays and so on. When I moved to start my doctoral work uh, at Oxford, I uh, my supervisors, my advisors, had an extremely hands-off attitude. I was put in a room with three other young men and we basically were self-taught. Oh, my my advisors did almost nothing. And I see that as a critical period in my development because, in a way, I was unlearning to be taught. The previous 12 or 14 years of my educational experience had been an apprenticeship in tutelage, you know, as, as it is for everybody. Part of being at school is learning to be taught mm -hmm. and what that is and what set of expectations and skills that requires to be taught. Whereas uh, when I started on my research work, uh, we had to do it by ourselves. And there was just this small community of us blokes. And I think that gave me, uh, it, it built in me habits of thoughtfulness and also self-confidence to sort of think deep down. I think this is the biggest gift, really, that what I, what I thought was worth thinking and what I wondered about was worth wondering about. And then that, so that steered me into, originally I was going to be a, a, an academic psychologist, but I got a temporary job working in education. And I was so intrigued by the real life, complex real life challenges of education that that's, that's where I stuck, as I say, for my day job. Although I've always kept a, a foot and a, a, a publication route through um, the cognitive science as well. Oh, that's amazing. And do you feel that those years um, growing up in the countryside where you didn't have a lot of friends, exploring nature, making sense of the world, that probably developed some strengths within you that then served you well to have the autonomy to self-study? Yeah, I think so. And it also, I think um, one of the things that that apprenticeship in self-stimulation if you like, when I during the during the holidays, was it made me a writer um, because I enjoy the 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 process, the, the the procedure of writing, which is quite a solitary activity. Mm -hmm. I became a writer and also a Buddhist. The Buddhists like sitting oh, right. still and, yeah. and not, not not doing much for a long period of time. So I think that kind of interest in my inner life and confidence in my own life and also a kind of independence an intellectual independence gave me a lot of the grounding a lot of the steering that that uh, sort of then led into the career and the the the, the, the extensive life as a as a practicing and reasonably successful writer yeah that's that's really good to know and and to understand you can see the seeds of that I think planted in a lot of your writing and a lot of the books you put out and what you believe in and, and continue to learn about yourself 
um, in regards to education. And um, before jumping into the book, I, I heard you in the conversation with Kath last week. I listened to it a, a few times, but I really liked the the metaphor that you used. Um, you said you're not into mechanical metaphors, but you use the metaphor of gears to describe the purpose of school. And, and I've, I've never heard it described like that. And I think it's really powerful for people to understand. And then this can really frame up uh, a little bit of the discussion that we have about the book. But can you just share what you meant by the metaphor of gears mm-hmm. and and how it applies to what you believe in in regards to the purpose of school? Yes. I mean, you will, you will, you will realize as our conversation goes on, Andy, that I use a lot of metaphors. I, mm-hmm. I think in metaphors. Yeah. And that's, I think that's part of what makes my writing user-friendly and, and in some ways distinctive. I, I, one of my skills is being able to find a good sort of pictorial way of, of, of capturing things and when, when people recognize that in my mm-hmm. writing. So the metaphor of the gears, and this is probably the only mechanical metaphor that I'll allow myself. Most of my metaphors tend to be more biological or ecological. Yeah, river-based. As, <laughs> as you will find out. Um, the, uh, the metaphor of the gears was just, you know, it, it's always astonished me that schools function as a sort of hodgepodge of influences and practices and pressures and so on. And in my ideal world, you know, you start from what do you want the kids to to be like when they leave us? What are we, you know, what 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 will we be happy with? What will we be unhappy with in terms of what they know, in terms of their skills and expertise, and most more importantly, in terms of their have their habits of mind, their their dispositions, if you like attributes lots of this lots of words are used to describe this third category they non-cognitive skills 21st century skills habits of mind learning dispositions character strengths what have you it's all as far as i'm concerned it's all it's all the same territory so you know we need to be clear about what are those outcomes if we're not clear about the outcomes we don't know if we're doing a good job and if we're particularly if we're not clear about the character type outcomes it's all too easy to neglect them and to allow those to be pushed out of our minds or to surface only in a sort of rhetorical context. You know, it's like the fine words on the home page of the school website kind of thing. Um, if we're not careful that we end up, even though we may not believe it, we may end up running our school and our classrooms as if we believe that the most important things was grades and knowledge transmission and university entrance. And a lot of schools do that because they haven't done the hard moral and intellectual work of specifying clearly and precisely what are the other attributes and characteristics and competencies which they want to have in their young people. When you're clear about that, then you can think about, so how do all the other aspects of school, how should they line up so that they drive this output gear, if you like, in the most reliable and harmonious way? So how does the content of the curriculum line up to serve those desirable outcomes? How does the pedagogy 
line up? How does the forms of, how do the forms of assessment line up? How does professional development in the school line up? How does the leadership style line up? So all of these things should be meshed like a well-functioning set of gears so that we're so that all those minor gears are driving the main flywheel, if you like, of education, so that we're producing what we want. And the more specific we are also as a side effect of this, and the more courageous we are to publish that sort of full list, full list of what in Singapore they call the desirable outcomes of education, to, to publish that, the more we can encourage our parents and students to, so to speak, to evaluate us, to hold our feet to the fire. Um, and I think that's a very brave and actually necessary, a morally commendable thing for a school to do, to be clear enough about its objectives so that its customers can hold it to account. And where does the pressure come from to sway away from that and then root themselves in testing and, and grading and all of these other things, sure. which are, there is a place for that, but where does the pressure come from? Well, it comes from governments. It comes from habit and inertia. Often in, in the independent sector, it comes from parents very powerfully. Parents think they're paying their good, hard-earned money in order to get to, so that you you could get their kids to Stanford or Oxford or somewhere equivalent to that, and it becomes part of our job, part of the culture, even cultural evolution of a school means that we have to prioritize educating the parents. And actually, it's not difficult to educate parents to see that an equally important part of our job, where our means teachers and parents in coalition, is to prepare young people with the habits of mind that will enable them to grapple with difficulty, with their dreams and their visions and their values and their vocations to grapple with those with commitment and intelligence throughout the rest of their lives. Let, let's jump into the river metaphor because I think that will set the context further and then I want to go into the, the book itself. But talk about the river metaphor and Kath showed the, the picture of it in the conversation, but um, really interesting metaphor as well. And I was the person on the bridge when you were describing it, looking down mm -hmm. to see if I could see the fish. And, yeah. and I, I, I've been there. We've all been in that situation yeah. saying, hey, did you see that fish? And then you can't see yeah, it. And you have to look fish. through the murky water. <laughs> is to see the yeah. shadow, dark shadow of a fish swimming by. But talk yeah. about that because I think that's a really user-friendly way to look at this. Great. And it's, it's, I find it as a useful kind of guiding image for thinking about my work and what I'm doing. And it also gets us, begins to get us into the territory of the book because the, the, the book, in a way, is a critical examination of a different metaphor which is more like school is that there's a tug of war going on. There's a, there's a, an inherent conflict between the concern with knowledge and grades and rigor on the one hand and the development of these character traits on the other or learning skills or life skills, whatever you like to call it. And some people present those two objectives as if they were necessary competitors for time and attention and prestige. And a lot of people are arguing 
these days that the, the, the attempts to develop these learner characteristics is antagonistic to the traditional aims of transmitting the important knowledge base of our culture. And, and not only that, but there's some kind of fundamental flaw even in the conception mm-hmm. that we can develop these, these characteristics, that minds are malleable in, in this kind of way. So my metaphor of the river is a kind of counteract to that underlying conception, which quite a lot of people have, which says, you know, if you start talking about learning to learn and learning skills and non-cognitive skills, and other, somehow that must necessarily mean that you've downgraded Shakespeare and calculus and the periodic table and all that other good stuff. And I just think that's not true and not helpful to set it up in that opposition. So the river is my counter metaphor. And it, it says that in any classroom, all the time, three different kinds, these three different kinds of learning are going on simultaneously. The, the a transmission and acquisition of knowledge and understanding, the development of forms of competency and expertise and literacy, and the slower development of these underlying dispositions and characteristics. And I see those, I picture those as like the layers of a river. So as you go down the river, things get darker and they move more slowly in the river. So the knowledge is floating along on the surface of the river, little packets of a bit of chemistry, and now we're doing a bit of Arabic, and now we're doing a bit of... uh, history and now we're doing some physical education and so on and they're they're clear to see and they tend to move quite quickly a little further down in the river are the literacies and the numeracy literary literacy but also scientific literacy um graphical literacy visual literacy it astonishes me that some schools still turn their nose up at engaging children with graphic novels for example or with the use of film or video, which are so deeply part of our contemporary culture that it is mystifying that schools insist, you know, knowing how to read a book is extremely valuable and having the disposition to grapple with a difficult book is valuable, but so is watching and being moved by and sucking the meaning out of a whole lot of other media which you need to be literate and critically literate at. But then down the bottom of the river, where it's darker and slower still, is the gradual development of these these learner attributes. They take take longer to form. As Aristotle said, our personalities are collections of habits. And these habits and dispositions are formed slowly by the environments that we find ourselves in. We pick up the mindsets that are embedded in the cultural practices of the, the, the places that we find ourselves in. So the, 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 the illusion that you were referring to was these sort of down the bottom of the river is also where the big fish are. And I think these are the big fish of education. Communication, resilience, growth mindset, collaboration, imagination, critical appraisal of knowledge, uh, self-organization, management of attention, and so on. These these are like the trunk of the tree 
the epistemological trunk of the tree, if you like. So, uh, and sometimes it can be, sometimes we've not been clear-sighted about these fundamental attributes and their importance and our role in helping them to develop. So my image was of like, you know, me and a friend leaning over a bridge, looking down into a river, and she says, oh, look at those big fish down there, and you're looking and you can't see them to start with because your eyes focus on the reflection on the surface of the river, and gradually as you adjust your gaze, you begin to see these the bigger fish come into focus. And I think if we're going to be clear about 21st century education, we need to keep those big fish and the importance of fattening, growing those fish through our educational practices. We need to keep our eyes on those. Because if we neglect to pay attention, conscious, intentional attention to the cultivation of those big fish down the bottom, by default, we may end up growing a different kind of fish which is not helpful. Lots of kids come out of school passive, dependent, compliant, timid, unadventurous, frightened of making mistakes and only interested in the mark rather than interested in the pure joy of mastering something complicated. Now, I don't think those are 21st century values. So we want our classrooms to be places to shift the metaphor where there's an undertone that is just insidiously but benignly pulling youngsters week by week, term by term, in the direction of taking more responsibility for managing and organizing and planning and evaluating and troubleshooting, learning for themselves. If we're serious about the big fish, our job becomes transferring what were the traditional skills and sensibilities of the teacher deliberately and methodically transferring those to our students so that they become their own first marker. They become able to rescue themselves from difficulty on their own or in collaboration with their colleagues rather than sitting there miserably with their hand up saying, I don't get it, sir. I can't do it, miss. You know, yeah. where we see a lot of that compliance. So I find the fish metaphor helps the, the river metaphor helps me see that all of these things are going on simultaneously. And to be a 21st century teacher is a sophisticated dance, if you like, between transmitting the knowledge, building the competencies, and cultivating these dispositions or habits of mind. It can be easily done by a skilled teacher, but we need to understand what this style of pedagogy is life because teaching for results plus character requires a different pedagogy from merely teaching for results. If we forget the character, the pedagogy, like, for example, good old-fashioned didactic direct instruction, explaining, practicing, and testing, which was the traditional pedagogy, that can work to transmit knowledge and get short-term gains in grade scores but it, but it doesn't work. In fact, it's dysfunctional from the point of view of building those habits of independence and self-reliance. 
Yeah, and when you describe that in greater detail, the river metaphor, I also see the water as a metaphor for life continuing to change and the context yeah. for teaching and learning continuing to change. The river is never going to stop. And, and learning, uh, context changes, day-to-day -day teaching and learning changes. So we have to be fluid as educators and educational leaders to, to equip ourselves to be able to deal with the changing tide. And yes. when you talk about the social emotional learning piece, I think where schools get caught up, and this is where I want your advice, and you would know the IB, you know, the PYP, the MYP, the DP, but in particular, the learner profile attributes, which are pounded home by the yeah. IB as being so critically important and they are, yeah. but oftentimes they sit on as posters on the wall and then teachers feel as though it's, it's almost as if they're in silos and that they, they address them um, on the side and rather than just making them a part of everything that they do so that character development and social emotional learning is not a poster on the wall or an add-on to the busy plate of teachers. Teachers need to be equipped with the skills to embed these things into the day-to-day -day teaching. So what is your advice to, to move it from being just a poster on the wall of the learner profile attributes or the ATLs in a school to being deeply embedded within the day-to-day -day pedagogy and practice of teachers and uh, student learning? Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a good question. For about three or four years, I was an advisor to the IB uh, in trying to help them do exactly both those things. And I was sort of battering away at them to say, you need a more coherent story about the learner attributes, number one. Number two, you don't hold them like some precious, you know, chunks of gold that we've mined, we've discovered, and now we're the custodians of them. These are works in progress. You know, the learner profile should be something that is constantly evolving. And certainly it should be evolving over the years. The sophistication, the differentiation of the learner profile that you're working with should be much greater when you get to the DP than it was in PYP. Mm -hmm. um, but they're resistant to that. There is this sense that somehow or other they've discovered the crown jewels and, you know, would you tinker with them if you dare. Um, but the other thing is, you know, that I think is disappointing. I mean, the, the IB has been a fantastic leader for the importance of the big fish down the bottom of the river. But they've never really taken the extra step of evolving a clear pedagogy, clear advice to schools. And therefore, schools have been very, there's been much too much variation between the IB schools, between those who just stick up the learner profile posters or treat, teach theory of knowledge just as another subject, mm. and those who really get the spirit of the IB, which, which, which is that these, these attributes, the learner attributes, are things which every teacher, every lesson is in the, is in the process of cultivating. Not just, these are not just aspirations they're not just fine words these are these have powerful implications for our pedagogy um, and a lot of my practical work work you know creating resources directly for teachers has been around just making clearer and more precise 
what what is the core of that pedagogy? Not that we want to put teachers into straitjackets and turn them into robots, but again, it's like like my now my metaphor of the tree that there should be a trunk in every 21st century school of pedagogical non-negotiables. That this is the the, the general style of teaching that we use, which is designed to progressively deepen and strengthen and make more sophisticated resilience and empathy and imagination and collaboration. That these are, these are the parts of our developmental work that we should lay out for, for young people and which should be progressing in its deep, deepening and, as I say, becoming more sophisticated, more varied as, as youngsters go up the school. So, for example, you know, resilience in a five-year-old is, you know, not giving up and, you know, keeping having a go at something. By the time you're a bit older, you can start getting into some of the intricacies of self-talk, the kinds of things that athletes know, sports psychology knows a great deal about what is positive self-talk and what is negative self-talk and how you psych yourself up or psych yourself down in a big competition, i.e. in your examinations at school. We should be drawing on a lot of that information. Likewise, the cultivation of imagination or the cultivation of attentional control. These are all things that we know from cognitive science are much more learnable and tunable than we might have thought, or certainly when school was being designed. So there's now much more scope for us as teachers to see ourselves as mind coaches by analogy with an athletics coach and not just as knowledge transmitters. This makes our job more sophisticated, but I think it also makes it hugely more exciting and more satisfying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think of the cortisol, kind of the adrenaline rush the kids get when they're afraid or something happens and the ability to be able to put self-awareness practices, mindfulness practices into, mm. into action in order to recognize when there's a cortisol spike and adrenaline mm. rush to be able to, mm -hmm. you know, kind of self-regulate and to proactively come yeah. up with strategies to deal with that because that is yeah, a life yeah. skill. Absolutely. If I was global minister of education, there'd be an awful lot of life sciences and, and brain sciences and cognitive sciences in the curriculum. Like kids ought to know about this stuff, mm -hmm. about cortisol and about serotonin and about the, the embodied cognition and, you know, the importance of nutrition and so on to cognition. It's like, it's fascinating. And yeah. I, I think maybe this is just because it's my field. But I think, you know, kids would be absolutely fascinated to know a huge amount of the stuff that's, that's been going on in cognitive neuroscience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, Guy, let's jump into the book. So the future of teaching and the myths that hold it back. I want to ask you, when were the, when, you know, you were probably thinking about it for quite a while before, but um, when were the seeds first planted in your head to write a book such as this? And then how long did it take from that point to get pen on paper to actually publish it, which was, I think the launch was last week, right? Yes, it was. Yes. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm amazed. It seems to be causing a bit of a stir. It is. So far, so, so far, it seems like 
you know, nine, 90% of people love it and 10% of people hate it. So <laughs> it's got, it's got some attention, which is for, for, for good or ill. Um, but that's, that's good. I, I, most of my writing has been what I think of as in kind of advocacy mode. Uh, in, in the way that I've just been talking to you about, you know, what, what I, how I think it's kind of moral, morally driven, like how we should think about education and particularly about how that we should be thinking about pedagogy and devising along with, a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of imaginative colleagues and practitioners, smart, practical ways of making that a reality. You know, you talk about shifting the culture of the classroom and most teachers will go, uh, but, you know, when you can unpack that into lots of little things, so instead of going, uh, teacher goes, oh, that's neat. I could do that. I, I'm going to try that with my 12-year-olds tomorrow. Then you're really getting something, you know, then this sort of sense of, of gradual but targeted professional development becomes part of the pleasure of the job rather than someone's on your back saying you're not a good enough teacher. But so this, so this, this involves a lot of like school level pedagogical innovation, willingness to tinker with our practice. What the, I like the, what the Japanese concept of Kaizen mm. of continual improvement through small iterations or what Dave Brailsford was behind the success of the English cyclists called Marginal Gates. Yeah, just uh, yeah, James, James Clear, Atomic Habits, 1% Better, the aggregation of marginal right. gains. Yeah. Exactly. So we want that to be teacher's mindset. But um, I'm particularly aware in England, but there have been other places around the world, that, that, that there have been a group of people for, over the last, particularly intensely over the last eight or ten years, who've been making a very strong claim that has got a lot of attention. And the claim is this, that cognitive science has definitively discovered the fundamental architecture of the human mind. This is, that's the metaphor that they use. And that only one style of teaching is compatible with this architecture. And that that style of teaching is what we used to call chalk and talk good old-fashioned kids being told stuff, practicing it, and being tested on it. And I, as a working cognitive scientist, looked at some of these claims, and I thought, these are highly cherry-picked, and they're relying on psychological models, which were formulated in the 1960s when I was an undergraduate, and which now are way past their sell-by date, or at least highly contested, yet they're being presented with the utmost scientific confidence to teachers as if these were incontestable truths. And therefore, teachers being, through no fault of their own, susceptible to such strong claims, because we all like to feel that we have science on our side, teachers can feel intimidated from undermined, you know, if their intuitions are saying to them, I think what, I, what my, our kids need is a bit of discovery learning or a bit of problem, uh, problem solving or a bit of independent learning or 
a bit of uh, um, grappling, a bit, a bit of the opportunity to explore things before they have them explained to them. A lot of teachers, and I would agree with them, see that there is value in exploration that precedes explanation. Yeah. And actually, there's good science. I've just been reading a couple of new academic papers which show exactly that, that if you give kids a chance to grapple with something that is hard and which they may not be able to do, then when you start explaining them the, what it is you want them to know, that it's like you've prepared the pit. You have the mise-en-scene that is their minds are ready to grasp and understand and engage with and register more deeply the information that you're giving them. Like there's a purpose. There is a, there's a problem that is, they've experienced a problem which your information is now solving. And that leads to deeper and more successful learning and retention. So teachers need to feel confident in their ability to inhabit this mixed space, neither purely traditional nor purely progressive, but some, as you said a little while ago, Andy, some complex, dynamic, shifting, flexible, contingent amalgam of a whole variety of different ways of nuancing your teaching so that you're, you're judging your learners. Like, what would be a good grapple problem tomorrow for them? A grapple problem is something which they can't do easily but could have a go at. They could have some idea of how to go about it. And this, I like the concept of the grapple problem. It's mm -hmm. something that was formulated by a chain of schools in the US that you may be familiar with that were called the expeditionary learning schools. Mm -hmm. They're now called EL education. Um, and I'm, I'm a great fan. I, I, I've written about their work. I like to try, I like to promote their work. So, you, you know, you have time to grapple on your own with a problem, then you might share your grappling with, with a partner. What did you try? What didn't work? What thoughts did you have? Uh, and then you might share them with your whole table um, and see if you can make collective progress. Meanwhile, the teacher is wandering around eavesdropping on what the children are saying to each other, what their, what their difficulties are, what insights they have, what misconceptions they might be harboring. And only then does she decide what needs addressing when she pulls the class together and does the little the, the bit of whole class teaching. Now, there are all kinds of benefits of teaching in that way, not least that the kids are getting used to stretching their resilience muscles, stretching their collaboration muscles, stretching their imagination muscles to try and think up ways of rescuing themselves from, from being stuck. Uh, and then add the information that they need to know about long division or ionic and covalent bonding or the history of the Middle East or whatever it might be, that information is understood, is comprehended more deeply and more richly and therefore is more capable of being used functionally. You know, it becomes useful knowledge rather than just inert knowledge that you've plopped into your head because somebody told you you had to. So it seems to me just like it's a no-brainer that these kind of intermediate forms of pedagogy are where 21st century 
learning will it will emerge from and that it does us and does future generations a major disservice if someone comes along and says don't do that science says you can't yeah, you know, I think as you were describing that scenario of the teacher walking around the room listening and the idea of, you said, exploration before explanation, I really think of Dr. Richard Ryan and Dr. Edward DC's work around self-determination theory. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I had Dr. Richard Ryan on about five months ago and what a lovely, uh-huh. lovely person and and so down to earth and and still so crazy passionate about the work he does and Mm -hmm. you know the three human fundamental needs of of autonomy relatedness and competence that was interwoven into everything you just said the relationships are in place the relationships are in place for the the teacher is developing those relationships by honoring the students listening to them really listening to what they're curious about but then stepping in to help them be competent and to teach them the skills of competency but also autonomy and that's what i want to ask you is a lot of people have misconceptions about what autonomy means and dr richard ryan said it's not a free-for-all because it'll be chaos. There has to be constraints in place. But what do you feel, you know, um, in, in your writing in this book, what is the role of autonomy uh, in this? And how do you interpret autonomy in this process? Um, I, I have to have a side conversation before I try and answer that question, sure. Andy, which is, I think one of the important things that I try to do, and I think we all should be trying to do, is to find ways of plain speaking about, about this, this territory. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful temptation that people try and reassure themselves that what we're talking about is intellectually robust by latching on to words that a lot of people don't really understand but sound impressive like metacognition, like self-regulation, like autonomy, like agency, and so on. So if by autonomy you mean being able to do things for yourself and by yourself, let's say so, because the parents will understand that. Yeah. Parents don't understand what the hell a metacognitive strategy is, mm-hmm. but they can they but they can perfectly well understand that there are productive ways of talking to yourself when you're in the middle of doing something difficult, which might help you find the solution. You know, like right. anybody could understand that. We all have a voice in our head. Mm-hmm. So I one of my campaigns is a sort of plain speaking about mm-hmm. about this territory, about 21st century education, where we go. Because otherwise, you know, it's what happened to growth mindset, you know, or even the concept of resilience. They get sort of fetishized and people use the word again and again and again. They only half understand what they're talking about and the kids only quarter understand what they're talking about and they get so fed up. It's like I can remember a group of kids saying I was asking them how they were getting on with the framework that I used to use, which was the four, it had four R's, one of which was resilience. And these kids were saying, if my teacher says resilience to me once more, someone is going to die in this room. Someone is going to get shot, you know. So, and I, so I, we, it, it's, it supports the endeavor if we can keep looking for plain ways of talking about what it is we're after and what it is we mean. So I think that's important. So, but developing autonomy 
or agency or oracy is another fashionable word around. Oracy means being able to talk clearly to other people. Well, we, we can say that. Um, I mean, all of these, I think, are part of this, you know, trunk of the character tree, the 21st century character tree. So just learning to be, I, I would want to unpack autonomy. In a, in a way, some of these words, I've thought a lot about the language here. Some of these words are too grand. I don't like the word motivation because it's not a thing. It's an outcome of a whole lot of other things, as is creativity. Creativity isn't a thing. Creativity is something that emerges from curiosity and imagination and perseverance and self-evaluation. You need all of those attributes. It's like it's you need all the instruments of the symphony orchestra. Just saying orchestra doesn't tell you what's going on. So um, autonomy, I think, is, is a bit too high level for me. But certainly resilience in the down-to-earth sense of being able to persist to, what's the phrase I use? Being able to stay intelligently engaged with things that are difficult and being able to stretch that so that you can think of more things to try and you don't give up so readily and you don't, particularly, you don't feel inclined to give up and say, oh, this is too hard because when you're struggling with something, there's a voice in your head which says, if you were bright, you could do it easily. So if you can't do it easily, it means you're stupid. Right? Now, that voice is still prevalent in education. There are some teachers that still create a cultural message which says, if you're a bright student, you answer everything correctly, quickly, without error, always. Right? That's a lot of teachers' working definition of intelligence is that. That's the behavioral evidence of being a bright kid. You give answers that are correct. They come quickly. You didn't have to try. And you do that on a regular basis. And, and that, I, I, I just wanted to say there, I don't mean to interrupt, but what comes to mind is this idea of flight, fight, and freeze, and which, which happens when you put kids in certain situations. You know, well, if they don't know the answer, they, they fear that. And it they, becomes threatening. Yeah, and they, they want nobody to. Likes yeah. the, nobody likes to feel stupid. Exactly. Right? So part of this creating the culture, the nurture, the culture that nurtures learning robustness in young people is making sure that we're not giving out any of those messages, that we don't non-verbally indicate that we approve of the smug kid who sits at the front with a little smile on her face and the, her hand is always going up because she just happens to know the right answers anyway because her, her, her parents are certain kinds of parents compared with, 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 with other people. You know, everybody in the room should be understanding that just as in your athletics training, there's, there's no point in being there unless you're getting hot and sweaty and tired and you're making mistakes. You know, that's where learning happens. Likewise, in the classroom, the top set, the brightest kids are the ones who should be constantly saying, oh, this is really making my brain hurt. You know, I'm not sure if I know how to do this. Whereas some of them think that, you know, that their job, the bright kids, that when they get to school, their job is just to show off. Well, that's a waste of time. And parents should understand 
that a, a, a neat page in their exercise book with 20 answers, all of which have a tick against them, is completely worthless unless there was effort involved. There was more learning happening if you got 12 out of 20, probably, than if you got 20 out of 20. Now, that's not a difficult idea to grasp, but some parents don't get it. And some kids don't get it. You know, they feel if they're not given an A, somehow or other, there's been a, an injustice. You know, the world has gone wrong. You know, but these are all like sort of fairly simple things. Yeah. But any, once we express these things clearly, teachers could say, oh, so what are some of the things that I might do inadvertently? which might be undermining the sense of psychological safety mm -hmm. in my classroom, which might be making kids, you know, defensive or shy or make it sort of socially dangerous to venture an answer that is incorrect. You know, do I allow a group of bright, arrogant kids in the classroom to groan out loud and roll their eyes and make a disparaging remark about another kid who's given an answer that wasn't what was wanted, that wasn't perfect. If I allow that to happen, I am allowing my culture to become an, un, my, the culture in my classroom to be unsafe to be a learner. To be a learner is to venture, to experiment, to try something new, to be half-baked, to have a go, to not know if you can do it yet. That's where learning happens. That's where it's in the brain. That's what the brain is designed to do. The brain responds to, to curiosity and disappointment, you know? So we have to make our classrooms places where being, feeling frustrated and confused are entirely normal. Richard Ryan, or not Richard Ryan, sorry, um, Ron Richard talks about that high ceiling and low entry point. When you, so when you're talking about the highest in the class, you know, you want them, as you describe, the, the brightest in the class to struggle, like you say, mm -hmm. an athlete sweating and having to work hard. Mm -hmm. Well, there needs to be a higher ceiling set for those students and a low entry yeah. point for your low uh, students. So differentiation, right? Right. Yes, but also, in, in my way of looking at things, we are also coaching our students to self-differentiate. Yes. As in, as in many athletics mm -hmm. forms of, of coaching now, sort of theories of coaching, are now much more likely to include, like, athlete-centered approaches to coaching, they're called, mm -hmm. are much more likely the coach is likely to see herself as someone whose job it is to help the students learn how to coach themselves. So I have a friend who's a national youth football coach. Yeah, he, he used to work for the Football Association in England. And he would go into a, a football club, Chelsea or Spurs or Man United, with a group of 11-year-olds. And he'd say, you know, so what, what are you supposed to be practicing today? And they'd say, you know, defending two against one. So he'd say, so I just want you to go away five minutes in groups of three, what do you think would be a really neat way of practicing that? And then they come back with some ideas. Mm. And they're usually pretty good ideas. Mm. So now they're participating in the creation of their learning environment. They're not just passengers, but they're becoming crew in the learning enterprise. And that stands them in good stead, because then that's installing in their head a productive metacognitive voice which says, I'm stuck on this. How could I get out of it? 
right? You're becoming more intelligent, more autonomous, if you like, about, about your own learning. So there's all kinds of practical ways. I was just going to give you one, one example. I yeah. wrote a, a book for primary school teachers with a friend of mine, Becky Carlson, who's an amazing practitioner. You should get her on your, on your show. Um, but she does, I mean, all kinds of little things. Like she, she just she, um, coaches five-year-olds. She, te- she teaches them the distinction between making a smart mistake and a sloppy mistake. Right? A smart mistake is when it's something that you tried out on the, on the basis of what you knew and what you thought might happen, and it didn't work out, and that taught you something. A sloppy mistake is when you didn't bother. Right? Now, just that little distinction is very empowering for children. Right? Because she can wander around. You can make a joke out of it. You know, so, so there's, there's a child in the classroom that goes, oh, damn. And she said, was that a smart one or a sloppy one? She has a display on the wall of her classroom called Mistake of the Week, in which kids line up to have, to, to, they vie with, you know, who made the smartest mistake. You know, it took a lot of thinking and it was really intelligent and really clever and it didn't work and I learned a lot, right? Now, that's, anybody could do that. And that makes, makes a, an incremental contribution to making your classroom a safe place to be a learner. Mistakes now become their, you know, they're sanitized. They're de, the poison is sucked out of them, right? Mm-hmm. And once you, once you make that clear to people, any teacher could go, oh, yeah, I get that. Lots of teachers go, oh, the mistake of the week. I really love that. I'm going to try that tomorrow. We need one of those in the staff room, someone said to me the other day. <laughs> So I love this kind of the little things that Ron Richard and I and Ron Berger and a lot of other people are generating lots of kind of really kind of grassroots level knowledge about the little signifiers in the classroom that create this shift towards greater trust, greater responsibility, greater autonomy for the kids. And we're doing it consciously and intentionally and developmentally. So whenever kids have got to one point, we're always thinking, it's like, you know, our motif is, I wonder if this group are ready to do this for themselves yet, right? Rather than always assuming that it's the teacher's job to do it. Oh, it's much more efficient if I just tell them. Well, in a sense it is, but stop and think, because by just telling them, you may be depriving them of growth opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you think about your book, in the last couple of minutes, I really want you to share with educational leaders and teachers listening to this. You know, obviously, I highly encourage that they get their hands on a copy of the book. But what is it that? Was it, what, you, was it, what was it called again, Andy? It was called "The Future of Teaching: The Myths That Hold It Back." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I just wanted to make sure everybody got it. <laughs> yeah. um, so what is it that you want teachers to most know uh, about the book? What I want them most to know is, or, or what, what, I would, what I hope the book will do, is to arm teachers against this bogus science, these strong but misguided and dysfunctional claims which are going around the world, stuff about cognitive load and working memory 
and all kinds of bits of science that sound as if they're very grown up um, and they're presented with absolute confidence by some researchers and some educators and some policymakers. This this language has become very powerful in the UK and 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 in some other countries that I know. I want teachers to know, I want to say to teachers loud and clear, they're wrong. The science does not disallow your desire to educate more rounded children. If you want rounded children, if you want those big fish at the bottom of the river, you have to teach in a way that, that puts as much exploration in the classroom as it does explanation. And that is not sacrificing uh, the concern with knowledge and grades and rigor. On the contrary, the grades go up when you teach in that kind of way because you have deeper thinking and stronger engagement in that kind of classroom. So don't be browbeat by people who say that discovery learn doesn't work. That, that we have shown, scientists have shown that it doesn't work. It does work. Well, of course, anything can be done badly. You know, doing discovery learning or, or um, problem-based learning or project-based learning is sophisticated. You have to judge your learners. You have to scaffold it. You have to give information at the right moment, not too early, not too late, not too much, not too little. It's a highly skillful job that is one of the most amazing jobs on the planet. And we're all learning to get better at reading a group and adjusting our timings on the hoof because something was taking longer than we thought it would, but it, the kids really need to stick with it and so on. It requires highly developed intuition. And I want to say to teachers, trust those intuitions and trust your desire to tinker your way forward, to become ever more effective at fattening the fish down the bottom of the river, which will stand kids in good stead for life, rather than just obsessing about the grades, which will get them through certain important gateways. But those grades do not predict how well you flourish when you're through the gateway. So you need both. So my, my gospel is a gospel of both. It's both and, knowledge and skills, rigor and relevance, explanation and exploration. And why, you know, why shouldn't we have both? Don't be bamboozled by someone who insists on sticking or between those things. Always ask for and. Can we do all of that in the classroom? Because yes, we can. Where can people find the book, Guy? I know it's easy to find online, but where do you want people to go to? Oh, I, I don't know. Whatever, whatever country you find yourself in, I mean, you know, the easiest thing to point to is Amazon or yeah. Barnes & Noble or Blackwell's or whatever, um, online, online bookshelves. But, you know, I would love people to, to get together and read it and argue about it and see what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Um, and hopefully we'll come out at the end. You know, this book is, is in a way, it's adversarial rather than advocational, which is my... But my adversary is not traditional teaching per se. 
And this is not me as a progressive engaging in the old Punch and Judy show battle between progressive and traditional. My enemy is that in this is in the, the use and the abuse of science yeah. to, to make strong claims that only one narrow style of teaching is legitimate because that is holding back desperately needed innovation in schools around the planet. Yeah, great. And where can people find you on social media, Guy? Uh, You're on Twitter. My, um, my, web, my website is okay. guyclaxton.net. Okay. Uh, Twitter is Guy Claxton. And I'm on LinkedIn. I forget what my LinkedIn handle is. Okay. But yeah, yeah. I mean, go to the website. There's lots of lots of information at guyclaxton.net, lots of links to podcasts and downloadable uh, articles and resources and so on. And, you know, uh, as well as the future of teaching, which in a way was just it's like a sort of side job for me that needed doing, like just to sort of throw some dynamite into this logjam, which has mm -hmm. been created by, by these false false oppositions, false scientific claims. But also, I know I would recommend people to, to, to look out the series of four books on the learning power approach, which is the positive stuff. Like, how do we do this? How do we become those kinds of teachers? So there's a general introduction to the science and the philosophy behind it. And then there's a book for primary elementary school teachers, like a workbook. There's a workbook for high school, secondary school teachers, and there's a workbook for school leaders about how you orchestrate the whole school culture change, as well as shifting individual teachers' practice in the classroom. Can you just repeat the name of those that series so people can possibly... Yeah, they're called the, 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 the first book is called The Learning Power Approach. Okay. Uh, teaching Learners to Teach Themselves is, okay. the, is the subtitle. Yeah. Um, and then the second one, the one for elementary school teachers is called Powering Up Children. Mm -hmm. The one for high school teachers is called Powering Up Students. And the one for school leaders is called Powering Up Your School. Okay. Okay, that's great. Also I, available available from all good bookshops. Okay. Everywhere. I had Trevor McKenzie on the podcast last week. Trevor's a, oh, a friend of well. mine. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was he had your book in his and he pulled it up and referred to it um, oh, in, the, in, in the podcast. Trevor's doing great work um, in the world. And, yeah. and what I really appreciate about Trevor is he's choosing to stay in the trenches of teaching, to stay grounded and, and literally presenting stuff that he's teaching last week, presenting it in a workshop next week. So it's really current, reflective, thoughtful um, teaching practice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I want to say, the world is full, is teeming with imaginative and trustworthy researchers and consultants and professional development people and school principals and individual teachers who are doing this stuff. Someone said the future is here, it's just not distributed evenly yet. So this is, this is happening. There's lots of proof of concept that we can teach this way. We can build character and get good grades. But it's not scaling up fast enough. There's, st there's still, in the global scheme of things, only a minority of schools who've got the bug uh, of this and who, are, who have made great strides to make it a reality in their school. 
Um, and so writing The Future of Teaching and the myths that hold it back was an attempt to, to try and clear out of the way some of the mind junk that is holding back, that is stopping schools that are maybe a little more cautious or that don't have such a courageous school leadership team or what have you. So this is an attempt to say, come on, guys, let's get on with it. Oh, yeah. We can and we should. Yeah, great, great advice to uh, end the show. And and just for just the last question I have, and 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 just give us a glimpse into this. But you know, the world has changed so much in the last eighteen months with COVID and the pandemic. Um, what has kept you genuinely inspired? And what have you learned most about yourself over the last year, year and a half? Oh, well, um, I'm, I, I sort of toggle backwards and forwards between education work and, and the more sort of theoretical or conceptual cognitive science work that I do. Um, so at, at the same time that I've been finishing off the future of teaching, I've been working on another book. The, the, the working title of which, I hope nobody will steal it out there, is it's going to be called An Idiot's Guide to Intelligence, <laughs> which is trying to rescue the, the notion of intelligence, to give it a real-world real meaning, like ordinary people going about their business, doing this, that, and the other. What does intelligence, what does real-world intelligence mean for me? And I think we need to, so this is going to be my next book, and I, so I've been collecting all what I call my nesting material for this book, which has been kind of keeping me going. Sometimes when you get to the end of writing a book, you kind of go and heave a sigh of relief and say, oh, God, I thought, I've, thought I'm finished with that, but now I've got to do some more changes to the manuscript. Yeah. So you have to have kind of a new love affair with the, with the, 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 the next book. So, yeah, I've been working, working on uh, developing ideas for that. And... Um, and that comes back to like, like what keeps, I'm supposed to be retired now, but actually on, on the odd occasion when, you know, I finished writing one book and I'm in a bit of a lull before the next one, I sort of lose my sense of purpose. So I think, you know, until my dying day, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to be a teacher. And that's what gets me out of bed every morning, even though I don't have to go, you know, my commute is about 40 meters walk down the garden to my garden office which is great but i do it every day at nine o'clock and uh and i love um being able to being a sort of midwife being able to draw on ideas that are coming out of academia and synthesize them and present them in a way that is accurate but also accessible because the world needs to know a lot of this stuff it is fascinating and it is important what you believe about intelligence matters. It makes a difference to how you live your life. That's, that's beautiful. And, it, and it's really about, um, I have found with my own two boys, my wife's an educator and uh, my oldest boy is 17 and the younger one is 15. And they, 
the younger one has his own burger business. He's been a, he's been a like oh, an avid, avid chef since he was probably five. And he came to <laughs> us last year with a proposal um, at Christmas time, actually to open up his own burger shop. He did all of the research. He has an Excel what? sheet of his costs. He, so he sells burgers. Um, I deliver them actually, um, in, in, <laughs> in the community, but he's become passionate about it and he wants to go to culinary school and the other son, uh, wants to become a professional golfer. And, and so it's like, you know, it's this journey of trying to support the kids with their dreams, but then also, helping them understand that um, the big fish at the bottom of the river and the skills they need to continue Mm. to develop, to pursue their dreams. So such powerful stuff. And uh, guy, I really appreciate your time today. So uh, thank you for being on the show. Not at all. It's been, it's been a pleasure. I hope we, uh, hope we uh, our paths cross again before too long. Yes, me too. I'm just going to close off the show. Then I'll say goodbye to you. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with professor guy Claxton. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.